I'm sure you'd agree with me that every arena of professional education, of professional school, whether that's medical school or nursing school, PA route or the NP training, or even schooling for certified nurse midwifery, all of those types of schools have some component of memorization of a diagnosis. And that's okay. We memorize answers for a test. And memorizing these answers will get you far on a test. But just because you've memorized an answer doesn't mean you'll be a great healthcare provider. You see, the good healthcare provider has memorized answers. But the better healthcare provider puts those answers in the right context. Let me set the stage for this discussion. If I were to ask you, what does a proliferative endometrium mean on a biopsy? Most of us have memorized that a proliferative endometrium is a benign condition and doesn't have to be treated. And that's fair. But what if that context was in a postmenopausal patient? Is that still the same answer or would you adjust your treatment? You see, this is the whole focus of a current commentary that came out in February 2023 in the Green Journal. This is under the topic Clinical Conundrums, and the title is Proliferative Endometrium in Menopause, To Treat or Not Treat. Now, before you rush to that answer and you go, well, it's proliferative endometrium. That's a benign finding. I mean, we're interested in identifying cancer, and proliferative endometrium is not cancer, so I wouldn't treat that. But are you missing an opportunity to intervene before it becomes something much more bothersome and worrisome? In this episode, we're going to summarize this clinical conundrums commentary from February 2023. And we're going to have you really pay attention to this issue of what is better to memorize the answer, like proliferative endometrium is benign, or to put that diagnosis in the proper context. We're glad that you're part of this journey with us. So let's get into our discussion right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Before we get into this summary and review of this Clinical Conundrums publication, just a quick reminder of where we've been and where we are now in talking about abnormal endometrial histology. So let's just sit there for a minute. Remember that we have normal histology, which is in general two types, proliferative endometrium and then secretory. And then the pathological variance originally was set forth by the World Health Organization back in 1994, and that was the four-classification scheme. We all know that as the simple hyperplasia or complex hyperplasia, either with or without atypia designations. For each of those four designations, I learned the risk of progression to cancer as a percentage as something called the rule of eight. Now, I'm going to explain that to you, and then once you hear it, it's going to make a lot of sense, and you'll never forget it. You see, simple hyperplasia without atypia, which was the most benign of the abnormal findings, if you will, had a risk of progression to cancer of 1%. Complex hyperplasia without atypia, which was the next rung on the ladder moving up towards worrisome, had a risk of progression to cancer of 3%. Now here's where the rule of 8 comes in. 
Remember that we just covered the risk of progression to cancer for simple hyperplasia without atypia and complex hyperplasia without atypia. But if each one of those had atypia, their risk of progression to cancer is multiplied by 8. So that simple hyperplasia with atypia now has a risk of progressing to cancer of 8%, whereas it was 1% without atypia. And complex hyperplasia with atypia now has a risk of progression to cancer that's 24%, which is 8 times more than complex hyperplasia without atypia. Because remember, that risk of progression to cancer, which was complex hyperplasia without atypia, was 3%. In other words, simple hyperplasia without atypia has a rate of progressing a cancer of 1%, but if it has atypia, it now goes times 8, which is 8%. And if it's complex hyperplasia without atypia, that background rate of progression to cancer is 3%, but if that complex hyperplasia now has atypia, it's 8 times 3, which is 24%. So that's the rule of 8s. According to this four-classification scheme from the World Health Organization, the main one that we're worried about is one with the highest risk of progression to endometrial cancer, which is complex hyperplasia with atypia. But you can see it's kind of complicated and kind of bulky, these four different classes. That's why a new scheme has been introduced and is actually preferred. This is the EIN scheme, which correlates very simply to like the CIN scheme. In other words, endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia is to endometrial cancer. What CIN3 is, is to cervical cancer. So in this new endometrial intraepithelial neoplasm scheme, the only one that we're worried about is the one that's designated EIN on histology and everything else is considered benign. I know I said that this is a newer scheme and designation, but it's actually not new at all. You can find more information on this endometrial intrapathetal neoplasia scheme in ACOG's Committee Opinion 631. Now hold on a minute. I know that we're talking about true endometrial abnormalities, like simple or complex hyperplasia with or without atypia, or this new EIN designation. But if you remember our topic, we're covering proliferative endometrium in menopause. I mean, that's kind of a different issue. Remember we said that there's actually two types of normal endometrial histology, and those two types are proliferative endometrium and circuitory. Those are normal. Those are not considered pathological. I mean, that's what we memorized for the test, right? However, what if that patient was in menopause, a time when her endometrial cavity should be quiescent, it should be quiet, and it should be non-proliferative? Well, that's the dilemma, and this is why this is called a clinical conundrum. Because while we have a benign finding, proliferative endometrium, in the context of menopause, it's actually an abnormality. So now let's dive into what's the best way to treat this according to this publication, and then we'll lay out some final recommendations recommendations at the end. Okay, okay, sorry. Before we get to this publication, which I promise we will, I want to remind us of just one more thing. Yeah, I already covered the World Health Organization scheme and the EIN nomenclature, but I do want to remind us of one other important fact. Remember that the body makes three kinds of estrogens. Estrone, estradiol, and estriol. Estrone is the main 
estrogen type in menopause because it usually comes from aromatization of androgens. Estradiol is the main kind of estrogen made during a reproductive lifespan because that's typically the one released from the ovaries. And the third type of estrogen is only found during pregnancy because its source of origin is the placenta. That's estriol. I just thought it'd be interesting and a good reminder for us to kind of put those estrogens out of the one box and put them into their own compartments. There's estrone, which is the one responsible for causing proliferative endometrium in menopause. And then there's estradiol and then estriol. Anyway, just a little tidbit in case somebody asks you, what are the different kinds of estrogen made in the female body? Because we all kind of group them together as estrogens, but the truth is, they're all different. Estrone is not estradiol, and estradiol is not estriol. Another important thing to remember is that it's not as clear as there's proliferative endometrium in one box, and then there's a chasm, and then there's secretory endometrium, and then there's this simple hyperplasia group over on the left-hand side somewhere, and then there's complex hyperplasia. Remember that these are all on the line, and where that little slider moves on the line for a diagnosis can have some intra-observer variability. In other words, the difference between proliferative endometrium and simple hyperplasia can be tough. That's why EIN tried to kind of group all of those other things as benign, and those things that met strict criteria were grouped as true endometrial cancer precursor lesions because they are on a continuum. And now that it's finally time to summarize this clinical conundrum publication, we got to remember one important thing. There's actually no guidelines for how to treat this in menopause. All of this is extrapolated from data on how to treat endometrial hyperplasia, whether it's simple or complex. But there really isn't anything on how to treat proliferative endometrium because as we've already established, I mean, pretty much we've kind of beat that horse down to the ground, is that it's otherwise considered a benign finding, except in menopause. The reason that we do that transvaginal ultrasound in perimenopausal or specifically menopausal women to look at that endometrial stripe, or the reason we do an endometrial biopsy is because we're trying to rule out endometrial cancer. I mean, that's the issue here. Endometrial cancer is the most common gynecological malignancy. And remember that there's two types of endometrial cancer. Type 1 is endometrioid adenocarcinoma, and that's the most common histological type. This accounts for more than three-fourths of all cases. This is the one that's associated with high estrogenemic states, and we've all memorized those risk factors. Those include obesity or chronic anovulation, even diabetes and nulliparity. And then there's type 2 endometrial cancer. This is characterized by clear cell and papillary serous tumor histologies. Most cases of type 1 cancer are low-grade and confined to the uterus when diagnosed. It's this type of cancer where EIN is a precursor lesion to, or in the old designation, complex hyperplasia with atypia. Now, I want to emphasize this very important point because these abnormal precancerous lesions of the endometrium don't just pop up one morning. 
it's not like somebody wakes up and says, hey, I'm complex endometrial hyperplasia with atypia and I'm here now, or EIN. That's not how it works. Remember, we just discussed that these abnormal endometrial histologies start actually on the normal spectrum and then move down that line like a slider moving down the ruler. So all of these actually first start as proliferative endometrium. And then they kind of work their way down the rungs as simple hyperplasia, complex, and then with atypia, and then ending at EIN, which is the true endometrial cancer precursor lesion. And so this is the dilemma. What do you do with an otherwise benign finding of proliferative endometrium, but in the wrong context, like a patient who shouldn't have that estrogen content at all, like in menopause? This is exactly why putting a lab test or a histological lab result into the proper context is absolutely important. You see, a proliferative endometrium on a 25-year-old patient with heavy menstrual bleeding means something completely different than proliferative endometrium in a menopausal patient. In one study of over 1,800 patients, those with proliferative endometrium had a fourfold greater risk of developing endometrial hyperplasia or cancer than those with atrophic endometrium. This is why having this finding in menopause cannot be ignored. That study was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2020, and the lead author was Rotenberg. The title of that publication was Long-Term Outcome of Postmenopausal Women with Proliferative Endometrium on Endometrial Sampling. I want to dive a little bit more into this publication because it really is eye-opening. And again, it was just published in 2020. That's not long ago. This was a cohort of patients aged 55 years or older. 278 patients had proliferative endometrium and they were compared with 684 patients who had atrophic endometrium on biopsy. Now, both groups underwent surveillance for more than 11 years. Those with proliferative endometrium weren't treated either medically or surgically. They just kind of left them to see what would happen. Nearly 12% of patients with proliferative endometrium developed endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. But remember this, none of them developed endometrial cancer within a year, but 45% developed endometrial hyperplasia or cancer more than five years after the initial diagnosis of proliferative endometrium. In other words, this is a very slow-going process. Remember, that's why stage 1 endometroid adenocarcinoma tends to have the best prognosis because women eventually come in with this abnormal bleeding when they know that they shouldn't. Remember, we're talking specifically about postmenopausal women. And look at the time span that it took to go from proliferative endometrium to atypical hyperplasia and then to cancer more than five years. Now, let's remind ourselves again that there is no formal guideline of what to do with proliferative endometrium found in menopause. So if you're thinking, well, I'm just going to observe them to see what happens. I mean, I guess that's okay. But remember that 12% of these patients did end up developing significant pathology. And it wasn't done six months or one year down the road. This can take a long time. So that's a long time to surveil someone if you're going to put them in observation. Well, if we aren't doing observation, then what's the alternative? Well, of course, the alternative is some kind of medical therapy, either with oral medications or a levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system. We already know that regression of endometrial hyperplasia in response to oral progestin treatment has long been established. However, reported regression rates vary tremendously, and the reason for that is because of compliance. 
the levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system, initially developed as a contraceptive device, of course, has also been used successfully to treat endometrial hyperplasia. Now, there's two big benefits of using a levonorgestrel intrauterine system over an oral medication. The first is easy enough to consider. Of course, that's compliance. But the second is more biological or more therapeutic. You see, progestin concentrations in the endometrium are 100-fold higher after placing an intrauterine device with levonorgestrel as compared to oral progestin administration. There is a meta-analysis of seven randomized trials that did demonstrate this therapeutic efficacy of levonorgestrel intrauterine system over oral progestins. Histological response rates at 3, 6, 12, and 24 months of treatment have been evaluated, and the levonorgestrel IUS had a significantly higher response rate than oral progestins at all time points. Overall, the levonorgestrel intrauterine system is more effective than oral progestins in the treatment of this endometrial cancer precursor. All right, podcast family, now that we're coming to the end of this episode, well, what's some practical recommendations? I mean, what are we supposed to do with this? Let's say we have a 55-year-old patient who comes in for abnormal bleeding, and on endometrial biopsy, you find proliferative endometrium. Now, we've already excluded infection, structural abnormalities, and any other potential source, and we're just left with proliferative endometrium. What's the best course of action? Well, we're going to come up with a potential solution here and treatment option when we come back. As we wrap up this episode, I have to remind everyone that putting a diagnosis in the proper context is super important. Proliferative endometrium in a reproductive age patient means something entirely different than proliferative endometrium in menopause. Of course, during menopause, there should be no estrogen production, but proliferative endometrium in menopause represents a state of unopposed estrogen, and that increases the risk of developing endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. This proliferative endometrium likely stems from aromatization of androgens in adipose tissue. And that's the catch here, is that we haven't changed the overall environment of the body so that she still continues to have this unopposed estrogen state. So it's reasonable to treat postmenopausal patients with proliferative endometrium with either oral progestins or, preferentially, with a levonorgestrel-releasing intrauterine system. However, patients have to know that there is no formal guideline for this. And while observation is a factor, it is an option, how long to observe someone is unclear. And just as beauty is in the eye of the beholder, data from the Roddenberg trial can be looked at one of two ways. Remember we said that nearly 12% of patients with proliferative endometrium developed either endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. That's 12% meaning close to 88% did not. So observation is definitely a factor if you consider 12% to be low. I view 12% as pretty significant and high. So it's most reasonable to offer patients some kind of therapeutic option, knowing, of course, that this is expert opinion, because as we've said many times already in this episode, there's just no formal guideline to go by. Then, of course, is the other question of how long do you treat patients with an oral medication, or how long do you leave the levonorgestrel IUS in place? 
analogous to management of endometrial hyperplasia without atypia, performance of endometrial sampling every three to six months for about a year after this initial treatment of proliferative endometrium seems to be reasonable. And if sampling yields normal endometrium, of course, excluding proliferative tissue, then sampling can be repeated if bleeding recurs. But if bleeding persists, then dilation and curatage or hysteroscopy can be performed to exclude focal pathology. And so, the final take-home message is put the diagnosis that you find in the proper context. Proliferative endometrium, even though an otherwise benign finding in a reproductive age patient, is an abnormal finding in menopause. And the most conservative line of treatment is to do just that. Offer treatment. Now, whether that's oral medication or an intrauterine system, well, that depends on the patient. And that is a perfect example of shared decision-making. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have summarized and reviewed a publication from February 2023's Green Journal under Clinical Conundrums. The author is Cynthia Abraham, and the title is Proliferative Endometrium in Menopause. As always, we're thankful that you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.